This is the inaugural edition of Risk Management Monthly, brought to you by Rick Bucutta, Mel Herbert, and Greg Henry. If you want to hear more about what this program's about, please go to the last track on this CD. But for now, let's let these guys do what they do. Malpractice is the only game in America where to win, you can't play. Nothing personal, Doc, but i got to make you look like a jerk. Chance favors the prepared mind. They're there on an emergent basis, they're afraid you're going to kill them, and you're afraid that they're going to sue you. And it'll all be packaged together in a rich, chocolatey milkshake of Risk Management Monthly. Very exciting. Well, welcome ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. We have got here Risk Management Monthly, and I want to introduce to you the two fine players, the main players that we have here. First of all is Greg Henry. He's a living legend. He's been in practice for over 30 years. He's received the highest awards from ASEP. He's the former president of ASEP. And he is internationally recognized as a speaker and educator. Frankly, ladies and gentlemen, he's extremely old. He has written literally the textbook of emergency medicine risk management. He himself has reviewed over 2,000 malpractice cases. He's one of the best speakers in emergency medicine. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Greg Henry. Thank you very much. Yay. Hey, hey. I'd also like to introduce you... Know, you before you get into that, he reviewed 2,000 malpractice cases or more than that. 1,000 of them were his own. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. There's only two reasons you can be on this show. You either know about malpractice or you've committed most all of those things. The other main protagonist that we have here is Dr. Rick Bucutter, also a living legend. In fact, he's the editor of Emergency Medical Abstracts. Everybody knows Emergency Medical Abstracts. It reviews over 600 journals a month. It's one of the largest audio series in emergency medicine now heard by as many as 10,000 emergency physicians every month. He's been the director of a community hospital for over 20 years and is still standing, which is unbelievable. So, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Rick Bucutta. Hey! And let me introduce you, Mel Herbert. Mel is our illegitimate son from Australia. <laughs> Mel represents the younger generation. Mel is our resident academic. Mel is from the University of Southern California, where he's the director of education. He's founder of their Essentials of Emergency Medicine course, which has been going on. Is that four years now, Mel? Oh, uh, yeah, five Last years. Last year... You had 650 registrants at that course. It was unbelievable. Thank you very much. Thank you. Couldn't have done it without you, Rick. Was it the quality of the course or the fact it's in Las Vegas? (laughs) Mel is also the host, father of, and founder of MRAP, Emergency Medicine Reviews and Perspective, which started, what, about two, three years now, Mel? Do you behind? We're at our sixth year now. Get out of here. Sixth year. Get out of here. 2001 was the first time we did it. So Mel's out there basically talking to the ER docs and the residents about cases, studies, this, that, lectures, great following. And I should just say, Mel, we're really very proud of this. Both MRAP and Emma are now being uh, subscribed to by 4,000 members of EMRA. We have all of these young doctors, this putty in our hands, trying to tell them how to be great emergency physicians. Yeah, it's a great deal we did with all of the residents and all of the students of Emory, which is four to 6,000 physicians and students, and we did it because we like to sell crack to school children. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> if we can hook them now, we'll have them for years. And Mel <laughs> is one of the founders of See Me Download, which is this internet-based, audio-visual, largely visual kind of thing, MRAP TV, those kinds of things. See me download. It's the wave of the future in emergency medicine education. It's television for doctors on the internet, if you can put all that together. And it's doing very well. And If you say so yourself. <laughs> if I do say so myself, it's wonderful. You know, one of the things we're going to do on this series is try and divide it into logical segments. And one of the logical segments we want to start with each month is what's in the news, what's topical. 
One of the things that came up to me recently as I was reading emergency medicine news, or it was the ASEP news, one of those sort of newspaper-type publications that are for emergency physicians, was a case of an ER doc that did something bad and there was some malpractice. But he was not only being sued for malpractice, he was being put forward as manslaughter or homicide. And this disturbed me greatly, that you could not only get sued for doing something bad, but you could also be brought before the courts for homicide or manslaughter. This scared the absolute out of me. Right. You could wind up going to jail. You could be fined. It's something that we're not used to thinking of. We're not covered by our malpractice insurance, obviously. You can't insure yourself against a felony kind of thing. We had one of these at our hospital, and it happened 15 years ago, a long time ago, so that although this may be interesting now, it's not something that's entirely new. This was an anesthesiologist who was supervising a number of cases and apparently was on the phone to his stockbroker, this, that, and the other thing. Something really bad happened. All the nurses knew that this guy was really not paying attention, etc. And this dribbled over from malpractice. It was a matter of homicide here. This doctor basically never practiced again. Frankly, they dropped that thing. But this is something that is very scary. So, Greg, is this simply about there are some cases of malpractice which are seen as so egregious that you should go to jail for it? Well, that's the theory of law under which they're functioning. Just understand this, that every county in the United States has a prosecutor of some kind. There are those prosecutors who are looking to make a point. They may be running for office. They want to show that they're tough on crime against white-collar criminals as well as run-of-the-mill thieves. They want to make sure that they can go after somebody without fear or favor. The other thing is they may need the votes at that moment in time. The theory under law which they are using is at what point is an action so egregious that it is not a mistake, but it borders on something that is criminally negligent. For example, if there is a problem in a surgery and the nurse's notes indicate that the surgeon is intoxicated, now we may have crossed the line. It's just not an error in judgment in surgery, but clearly the society would not support a physician going into the operating room in an incapacitated state. Let's take a case, for example, and one of those that you're talking about has to do with a patient being sent home and then dying with a myocardial infarct. Now, to me, as I read that case, it seemed to me that whether the medicine was right or wrong, it was clearly a medical judgment error. There's no facts brought forward that the physician was intoxicated, wasn't paying attention, hadn't examined the patient, had done things which were absolutely egregious. This was a fact that a patient got sent home and died. All of us are going to have something like that happen in our career. And I agree with you, Mel. I wouldn't want to practice under the threat that a legitimate medical decision is in and of itself, because someone died, considered manslaughter or homicide. Well, I didn't read the article, to tell you the truth, but there has to be more to it than meets the eye. You've got to really do something nasty. Well, to- let me give you another case. In fact, this is a case which I am looking at at this time, and so the facts will be purposely sketchy. But a woman was seen at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning with what may have been an anxiety or an allergic reaction. As part of the medication, she was given an antihistamine. And at the time she was discharged two hours later to drive home, the nurses recorded awake, alert, feeling better, etc., etc. On her way home in the car, she runs over a motorcyclist. The motorcyclist dies. She's initially charged with vehicular homicide. And then she said, oh, I was at that hospital. 
I think it was the medicine that they gave me actually caused me to do this. That's why I don't have good memory of what went on. So now the prosecutor has brought an action against the emergency physician saying that his actions in treating her and then letting her drive home constituted an act which is so egregious this ought to be considered a form of manslaughter and that they've got a criminal case going against the physician. This doesn't sound like what you were talking about. So this is clearly a case of what we do every day, give somebody Benadryl. And what is the motivation by the prosecutors to take what is clearly just a medical case? You could argue for or against whether there's any malpractice at all, even in that case, to take it to this level. Mel, for you and I and Rick sitting around this table, we're physicians, and we have to be honest about that. We take a physician viewpoint on this. Understand if you're a prosecuting attorney and someone who has to look at the interest of the public and, by the way, can get good mileage out of this discussion, he would say that any time you're in control of allowing someone to have a 4,000-pound weapon, an automobile, then you've taken on another level of society. After all, it wasn't just the patient who was involved here. It was a duty, and this is the concept under law, is called duty to third party. You have a duty to unnamed predicted third parties. It's like any time you write a prescription and you use a DEA number, you are obligated to warn about drinking, driving, the use of machinery. Why? Because if they go out and hurt somebody, have you put a third party at risk who didn't ask to be involved in this thing? That's why I think that physicians need to pay attention when they do write prescriptions which are in any way mind-altering understand that they've entered this duty to third party world where the state feels they have a right of an interest to protect the individual. It's more than just the patient who's at risk. It's a lot of other people. For example, let's say it's an airline pilot you've given a medication to and the plane goes down. This is another way of viewing this situation. Well, since the airplanes fly themselves, it's actually much safer to give a pilot a Benadryl than it is to give somebody who's driving a car Benadryl, in my humble professional opinion. You know, Rick, that may actually be the case. But the reason that this is debated and talked about so much is the fact that this fine line of where medical negligence begins and ends and where a criminal act, which is extended to the broader society, can be brought in is not clear. This is a gray zone. Now, all of us sitting at the table don't want to think that we have to practice shaking in our boots every day. By the same token, there are things physicians can do to put themselves in a much better state. And that is, number one, know what they're giving out, know what the condition is of the patient when they're discharged, understand how they're getting home, and ask themselves this question, are we putting someone else at risk? By the way, this is the same question we ask when we have somebody with a venereal disease. Do you have an obligation to the sexual partners of that person to stop a venereal disease from spreading? So what I want to know then as a practicing physician is I'm about to give somebody Benadryl. I'm about to send them home. How do I chart that? Do I say on the chart, dispensed Benadryl for said allergic reaction and instructed patient, this is sedating, do not drive? Is that how I have to write this down? If you've given them a medication and you think that there's a reasonable probability that it may have altered their performance, let's say, for example, it's 2 o'clock in the morning, a time when most people would have been asleep anyway. We know that there's some sleep induction associated with the medication. It might be worthwhile to say, how are you getting home? Is there someone else to drive? 
if there's no one else to drive, maybe two hours later we will give you your keys back or we'll let you go. Certainly when we've given people medication in the emergency department, particularly narcotics, we ask that question. In fact, frequently we will not give the medication unless there's somebody there to drive them home. Both of you have been in that situation where you've basically said no driver, no medication. No, this extends a little bit to this idea of duty to third parties in the state of California, and I think it varies by state. You have an obligation to report certain people whose behavior may put third parties at risk. And there was a great case here where a San Diego neurologist did not report a person who had a seizure disorder. The term here is disorders characterized by lapses of consciousness. And this person thought the person was really having pseudo-seizures and elected, therefore, not to report this person to the state of California. Well, this person had a pseudo-seizure and drove his car into a school bus in which there was a lot of kids who were hurt. This person's wages have been garnished. The whole world has fallen apart because he chose to ignore this important law that allowed other people to be hurt. Well, understand that in the emergency department particularly, we are, whether we like it or not, agents of the state to some degree. We report child abuse. We report elderly abuse. We are a monitoring screen for the state. The states vary. In the state of Michigan, you are obligated to warn them not to drive for six months till they are seizure-free or event-free for six months. But there is no place to report We do not report in the state of Michigan, the state of California. You have mandatory reporting. It is different state by state, and I think an emergency physician has an obligation to know what in the state in which he or she is practicing at that moment, what is the view of the state with regard to their activity. In our department, no one leaves with a seizure, and we, of course, see plenty of people who have gone off their medicines, this, that, another thing. We work them up. They're fine. They go home. But we warn them not to drive for six months, and the warning is put on the chart. Standard line, seizure warnings given. And believe me, that's adequate, because I would be able to say in court what my seizure warnings are, but it indicated that I thought about the third party. By the way, there's two kinds of third-party actions. There's duty to known third party, i.e., somebody may have sworn out violence against another individual. You have a duty to warn on known third party, Or, for example, someone who has gonorrhea, you may have an obligation to their wife, a known third party who may become infected. And then there's the societal duty to the unknown but predicted third party. You don't know who they're going to hit with that car. All you know is they have a reasonable chance of hitting someone. And that's the unknown but predictable third party. Realize these are California decisions, several of them. And if you look back to the landmark decision of Tarasoff versus the Regents of the University of California, and I will be very happy to just tell you that case for just a second. Tarasoff was a young woman who was killed by a man who was getting psychiatric care at UCLA. He had told the psychiatrist not only his rape-slaying fantasies about Ms. Tarasoff, he used Ms. Tarasoff's name two years later. This gentleman went out and took out his fantasies by raping and killing Ms. Tarasoff. Her family brought action against the regents of the University of California, saying that you had an obligation, you knew that someone was at risk, and you did nothing about it. This went all the way to the California Supreme Court. And in the Tarasoff decision, which is landmark, I mean, it set precedent in this country, basically what the Court of California said, Supreme Court said was, The doctor-patient relationship is not sacred. 
It is not the confessional. You have reasonable duty to people who you know may be at harm's way to inform. So the Supreme Court of California went with the Tarasaw family in this case and said, yes, doctors have an obligation to third parties not involved in the actual patient care. I didn't even know about that case. I feel so ignorant. No, let's get with the program. Come yeah, on. Yeah. Everybody no, knows well, about the Tarasov case. The Tarasov case is. I didn't know it by name. I knew the concept of it, but I didn't know the name of it. Now I'm going to quote that to residents like I've known that all of my career. Well, you know, actually, what Greg has <laughs> talked about is a generic issue. The generic issue was giving medications that will alter people's consciousness. There's no law that says you are violated that law, but it's viewed as common sense that we should tell people that you may not be able to drive a bulldozer kind of thing, heavy machinery. Everybody's talking about heavy machinery. Where do you draw the line on heavy machinery? Is yeah. it a crane yeah. or is it a, Rick, a small? Rick, if I can't pick it up, it's heavy machinery. <laughs> and then there's the specific issues where you are violating a law in your state because you either didn't know about it, chose not to know about it. Because like in California, we're one of the few states that has mandatory reporting of domestic violence. If you know about it, you are required. It's taken out of your hands. You don't have an issue now where a patient can opt out. You're required to report it. If, in fact, this person then, as this slippery slope continues, this person is more likely to get injured by or hurt by domestic partner, there's a culpability on your part now because you chose to ignore that law, which is really a problem for many of us in California, actually. Well, I think that California is not unique in this. We need to make sure you understand that wherever a doctor practices, he or she should be aware of the state law affecting their practice. In this program over the next year or two, we should hit those particular areas where state law is specific and then make some comments about it and an emergency department physician should, as part of their orientation, at least know what the law in that state requires. With regard to the reporting of child abuse, elderly abuse, taking away the rights to drive, all these things are now continuously becoming more and more serious. As we age in this country, there's going to be more and more questions about the elderly who are driving. So let's say grandma's in now with a minor fender bender and you're checking her out. Okay, you can't find any injuries. What obligation do you have in letting the authorities know that she was involved in that accident? I don't pretend to answer that question. All I'm doing is raising the issue that the emergency departments of the United States are a monitoring device, a way of looking at the society. One half the population of the United States this year will be seen in an emergency department. That means statistically, over the next couple of years, everybody will have to show up. So it is an obvious monitoring device. And we will get into a tremendously difficult decision when we talk about the seeing of illegal aliens and what they do in Europe as opposed to here in the United States. But that's probably beyond the scope of what we want to do today. Now, there's one other thing that I would like to say, and that is when I first heard about this case and we talked about it and we've gone a long way in that discussion it made me really upset that I'm now responsible for things which I didn't think I was responsible for. But I was thinking about, as we talked before, about bartenders. So bartenders are kind of in the same circumstance. You go to the bar, you get hammered, and then you hop in the car and you go and kill somebody. And initially it seemed unreasonable to me that bartenders should be held responsible for the bad drinking habits of their partakers. But I think it's also reasonable as a reasonable person to see if there was a bartender handing beer after beer to somebody who was clearly off their face, pick up their keys and head towards their car, I think a reasonable person might say it would be okay 
for that bartender to say, hey, hand me your keys or I'm going to call the cops because you should not be on the road. And that's maybe the same kind of analogy. The technical legal term for that is dram shop, and the dram shop laws vary state to state. There are those that where the bartender is forbidden from serving those people who are clearly intoxicated. Now, you understand that every part of that is definitional. What's clearly intoxicated is the total number you've given them. If they've had 10 scotch and sodas in an hour, are they clearly intoxicated? If they're now slurring their speech, if they stagger heading toward the door, when is it that they're supposed to report? I think that this is, again, determined state by state. And as a matter of fact, there's been some recent reductions in the various states as to their intensity of dram shop because it's so difficult to enforce. So for those of you that aren't MRAP subscribers, you may not know that uh, I like to overemphasize things. So let me do a quick summary as I saw it in the last 15, 20 minutes. We talked about the duty to third party. We not only have to look after the person in front of us, but we have to look after the community as a whole, whether they are people we can easily see who they are or basically as a community. We talked about state law requirements for reporting, and I think the take-home message I got from that is I better pull up on the Internet my state board requirements because they're going to be different than your state board requirements and read through them, and as a physician, I better know them because being ignorant of them is no defense, is my guess. And then there was this idea about dram shop. How do you spell that? (laughs) D-R-A-M. (laughs) S-H-O-P. So again, the concept that we're not the only people who have this issue, but also bartenders as the example that we use there. So there are the four major points that we talked about in the last 20 minutes. One of the things that you mentioned is going onto the internet to find out what you're required to report on. I don't think there's any one spot that says, here's what doctors are required to report on, and that's a problem. I do think that it would be the expectation that the emergency department director where you work knows these things. This is one of the things that distinguishes them as a director in terms of they need to know these things. They need to disseminate it to all of their colleagues who are working in the same department so that nobody says, you did what? It's much broader than that, Rick. I think that the people really involved here are the hospitals themselves. The emergency physicians are either the direct agents or the apparent or ostensible agents of the hospital. The hospital and hospital council have a duty and an obligation to maintain in that emergency department a book saying here's the state law requiring X, Y, and Z because the state laws change. Hospital councils are supposed to know when there is state law changes which are going to affect the practice which that institution gives out. One thing about emergency physicians, they are not running a small mom-and-pop shop someplace. They represent a larger institution. If Mel does something wrong at the University of Southern California, the people who are going to be answered for that eventually are the regents of the University of Southern California. But it's going to be a piece of Mel's hide out of that, and they're going to say, Mel, why didn't you know this? And I think one of the other opportunities to know this is maybe this is something that your state ASAP chapter could do so that all of the physicians in the state could be given, here's the things that you are mandatorily obligated to do under the laws of this state. Because I think the idea of giving it to the hospital and say, this is your responsibility, they might not do that. I think we basically need to take this on ourselves and try to ascertain well, what we I, I need think to you do. have an obligation to move ahead and get that information. But I think we have to view this as a partnership with the hospital. By the way, it's not just us who let people go. The nurses are involved in this. The nursing evaluations at the time of discharge are involved in this. There's lots of things that flow together here on some of these cases. 
Let me give you a difficult case. A child is seen in the emergency department, some bruises, some marks. The emergency doc is willing to take the explanation of the mother after he consults with the doctor that, yes, this probably was an accidental trauma. The child is brought back in two days later with a subdural hematoma and obviously a much more severe beating. There were nursing comments on that chart as to the interactions between the mother and that child. Now, as the data came out, of course, the mother's boyfriend, not the biological father of the child, was beating the child. Who's responsible for this? Clearly, in that state and in every other state that I know, the obligation to report. Now, you never report child abuse. You report the suspicion of child abuse. Proving child abuse is an action of the court. But in that case, the doctor is involved, the nurses are involved, hospital administration is involved. It is not a simple issue as to who's going to take the fall in a case like that. Well, actually, in cases of child abuse, my understanding is that anybody who knows or suspects is obligated to report. So that the nurses can independently report. They don't have to ask the doctor's permission to report what they suspect to be potentially Absolutely, they can. In fact, most states list who has to report. Social workers teachers. There's all kinds of professions other than just medicine that has to be involved. But to think that we're in this by ourselves, it's sometimes a complex interaction. That's why sometimes erring on the side of being a little safe on those things, of over-reporting, is not a bad thing. So Mel, you were giving us the bullet points. You made new bullet points (laughs) at the end of my bullet points. There'll be a lot of bullet points by the end. So give us some more bullets here. Well, that's it. That's all I got. Now you're telling us that it's the duty of the directors and the individual physicians to know when to report. And one of those things that's true in all states, I believe, is that you have to report suspected child abuse and neglect. Well, I know that Rick has a concern that has recently come up, and he wants to tell us about consent. So this might lead into a nice discussion in the next 20 minutes or so about consent, what it means, and what's going on. So, Rick, what was the particular issue that you had? That well, I've heard up? Greg talk many, many times, and he has said, I've never seen a case where consent is an issue in a malpractice case. And I've heard that. However, the Emergency Department Directors Academy has a internet dialogue thing. What do they call those things? A no. list server. List server, something like that. Let's give credit here. This Director's Academy is a product of the American College of Emergency Physicians. It's a program which they have to further hone the skills of people who wish to be directors of emergency departments. What, are you getting a commission on that or something? Yeah, like that? Yeah, what is that? Yes, right. Greg, Greg, Greg and I have both participated in it. It's a terrific course. And as one of the spinoffs, they have this Lister, right, 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 right. And one of the things I read on there recently, which just absolutely blew me away, was a conversation by the members there about, do you need to give informed consent to patients who are about to get thrombolytic therapy? And I thought, oh, are they kidding? It's obvious. Of course you have to do that. So I wrote a little thing that said, in essence, absolutely, this therapy is dangerous therapy. 12% of the people will get better. 6% of the people will get worse. We have no other therapy in medicine that involves drugs, which has such a narrow therapeutic index. And I wrote this thing back. And what I got back in return was, no, 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 not so fast here. We work at a stroke centers, quote-unquote stroke centers, and we don't ask permission to give thrombolytic therapy. This is an FDA-approved therapy, and as such, we are not required to do that. And I said, huh, so what? And I was absolutely floored that anybody would take such a paternalistic view 
of the giving of thrombolytic therapy in the setting of a stroke. Doctors give out FDA-approved therapies every day and ask permission, get consent to give it. I don't know anybody who's getting cancer chemotherapy, all of the majority of which is approved by the FDA. We ask those people. We talk to them about the ups and the downs. You're absolutely right. TPA is the only drug in the emergency department where in the best of all studies, which, by the way, has never been reproduced, one out of every 19 people bled to death into their head. This is a serious question, and I think that the issue of consent there is a real one. By the way, Rick, when I said that I've never seen consent as the issue, that is whether seeing the patient, having consent to see the patient is an issue. By virtue of the fact that we exist, the fact that they came in, their presence gives consent. They showed up for care. We're not running a pizzeria here. This is a hospital. When they walk through the door, we assume that they want care at that moment in time. Now, if we think they need an elective operation such as an appendectomy, I don't know any surgeon who doesn't seek consent for that procedure. Yeah, there is a procedure that's got much less risk associated with it than thrombolytic therapy. Yet, there's a formal consent that is done. Not very good, generally. We'd like to take your appendix out, and you might get an infection. You may die. Here's sign here. That's generally the version of consent. And I would like to talk more specifically about what a good consent would consist of. But the fact is that in this therapy, which is extraordinarily safe to have your appendix taken out, you go home tomorrow... They wouldn't think of not consenting a person. But is there a graph here that goes somewhere from we do things to you which are benign, Botox, you probably need to get consent to give somebody Botox, but it's clearly an elective procedure versus, as we spoke about a little earlier, the person who comes in who is about to die unless we do something and how ridiculous it would be to get consent at that point, that nobody would get consent for the person who's exsanguinating without putting pressure on it first. Where does stroke lie in that obviously very large spectrum. Are they saying stroke is so bad that, of course, the implied consent is that I should give you a therapy that might help you? Well, it's much more complex than that, I think, because getting consent requires that someone has the capacity to give consent. When you're dealing with someone who has now lost the ability to speak or think, how exactly do you interpret what someone has to say when you say, you know, sir, you could bleed into your brain, do you want it? And they're going, "Uh, I mean, where does that come out on the scale? Now you've got a family member. It's their wife who is also heir to the estate. And you say, yes, he could die. And she's, well, you've got to proceed ahead. I mean, I think that there's some mixed message here. There's a difficult problem. Yeah, I'm not saying it's easy. But the idea of categorically saying we don't do it is tremendously different. Exactly right. The other thing is if you look at the group that is supposedly going to benefit from this drug, you can't have them too sick and yet not sick enough. They're supposed to have a significant stroke but not a devastating stroke. It's a very fine line and a very fine group of patients that this falls to. All I can tell you is whatever the hospital's policy is, you better have worked it out very carefully And the emergency physician would be smart to have other people such as neurologists involved in this care. I think this is difficult consent territory. Those neurologists know no more about this topic than you or I or most good emergency physicians. I think the issue is, have you made a reasonable attempt to give this person a balanced assessment of their options? I think that's right, Rick. But I think balanced sometimes is influenced from where we come from. You and I, in all honesty here, are not big TPA people. 
But I think that in a hospital that does give it, I can at least say to the patient, here are the possibilities. You can get worse. You can get better. About this many people get worse. About this many people get better. But I would point out that in a crisis situation, in my heart of hearts, I'm not sure how many people are listening carefully to that discussion. What they have to pick up from you is the idea that this is dangerous. There's a chance that they might be better, and there's a chance they might be worse. Can I ask a specific question then? Does having a consent form on the chart help me later if I'm in court and I gave a therapy and it went bad versus I don't have an extra consent form? For example, I give somebody TPA, they bleed into their head, they sue me, but I have a consent form that the lawyer can wave in front and say, well, you signed the consent. Does that help me? Does it not help me? I've been the expert in TPA cases on both sides. I've seen them sued for not giving. I've seen them sued for giving. And I think it's not so much the consent form that they signed as the discussion you had with the patient. By the way, the giving of TPA is rare enough for most emergency physicians that you probably ought to make a little note about the discussion you held with the family about this, that they clearly understood and are willing to accept certain kinds of risks here because no question that this is not benign therapy. Yeah, my point is a good faith effort. It may not be perfect. You're going to try to do your best, but... Wouldn't you be infuriated, Greg, if a relative of yours was given this stuff and all opportunity to yes, no, maybe was taken away from them? Yes, I think that that's not right. The other thing is we do see patients who have a small amount of deficit, and you do need to balance, am I willing to live with this much deficit versus the chance of going on and bleeding to death in my head? You're right. They need to have that kind of candor and honesty if you're going to give a drug with that degree of lethality. Yeah, I don't want to talk about the merits or non-merits of giving TPA for strokes in this tape right. series. I mean, that's we do that other places. But the issue of consent, I think, is I can't conceive of a hospital. Generally, they're very conservative places. They ask you for <laughs> consent for radio contrast for your CT scan. Well, the they, joke is they ask about a consent form for a spinal tap, which is one of the safest procedures we do. When's the last time you ever had a problem with a spinal tap? Actually, there was a great thing that I read recently. They basically want you to fill out the form because of the ionated contrast. Sign here, permission, permission, permission for that. The fact is is that they should really give you consent for the amount of radiation, radiation. you're going to get. The risk of a contrast-induced lethal reaction is less than 1 in 400,000. 1 in 400,000. The risk of you dying from a CT of your abdomen is about 1 in 2,000. Well, no, wait a second, Rick. Let's be fair about this. That's if you're giving it to a child or something like that. This is not if you're giving it to grandma who's 80. Right. We're just going to take the average bear. We're going to the take average the average bear. bear. But it is less for children. And it's, yeah. but I, I mean, it's more, more chance of cancer for children and less chance for adults. Let me tell you what's not discussed right now, now that we're on radiation. I don't remember anybody asking me to tell parents that there's a 450 times dosage of radiation, 450 times a chest X-ray being given to their child to check and make sure they have appendicitis. It'd be just easier to take their appendix out and then they'd never have or, appendicitis. We're irradiating again. it out. That's a new therapy. Well, yeah. we're, we're kind of getting onto a tangent here. So I want to go back to something you said before. So you said that the consent form itself may or may not help you much better is the discussion. So practically speaking, how do I tell the lawyers and the jury that we had a reasonable discussion? Is it simply a note in the chart that said we discussed the risks <clears throat> and benefits of this therapy? We can't do anything to the satisfaction of attorneys, so don't even try. 
they'll always say, well, you could have put this down, you could have put that down, you could have done a lot of things. But if you have a note that indicates I held my usual and customary discussion, the law recognizes usual and customary. So when they say to me, Greg, what was your discussion? I'd say, this is what I usually talk about with patients. I have no reason, counselor, to believe that that discussion was not held at this time. My note indicates that I held the same discussion with them that I do with everybody else. And it doesn't have to be long, but it does have to indicate that you touched on that area. I always point out, by the way, in court that you don't want me spending a lot of time with the chart because the only time I'm not seeing patients taking care of a person is when I'm writing on that chart or doing something mechanical to the side. I don't care whether it's computer program or whatever it is. You want your notes to be short to the point and understand you may have to elaborate on it, but the law recognizes that. So the buzzword, you'd actually physically write on the chart, I had my usual and customary discussion about thrombolytic therapy for stroke. Risks and that. benefits. And you'd obviously start that by actually having the usual and customary discussion, and then you'd document it. But That's you right. put those if, words down. If you're writing that down without having the discussion, you <laughs> have an problem. ethical and moral problem <laughs> I can't help you with with this course. Yes. Although one of the problems with that or the potentials with that is when you put this down and then they ask you, Dr. Will, what did you really mean by your normal neurologic exam was normal here? <laughs> You outline this neurologic examination, which is the state of the art, but which, in fact, you've never done. And I think it allows you to engrandize substantially what you say you did, when, in fact, you may not have. If you just put standard... Rick, I can't solve an ethical question in the doctor. If honor be not aboard the ship, it isn't going to sail. But if you and I cannot write everything down on a piece of paper for the sake of lawyers in one in every 20,000 cases, and that's what malpractice is. You know, that's a really important point that you brought up, which we haven't talked about. Um, one in 20 to one in 30,000 ER visits will result in a lawsuit. And so the rest of this is largely practice. Well, It's a rehearsal. It's 99% of them are a rehearsal where that chart will never be read by any lawyer, never be a part of any deposition, et cetera, et cetera. We've just gone over these figures, and malpractice is highly regionally dependent. If you're in Dade County, Florida, your chance of getting sued in an emergency department are about one in every 5,500 visits. What about Wayne County? Well, Wayne County, it's pretty similar. If you're in <laughs> South Dakota, it's about one in every 60,000 visits. Why? Do they actually know 20 times more in South Dakota than they do in South Florida? Maybe they have less lawyers there. Well, of course, and the other thing is, in South Dakota, they kind of like their doctors. You're the second most important guy in town. The most important guy, of course, is the vet. Because you can always have more kids, but good breeding stock is hard to come by. So can I ask another question then? What is covered in the general consent that most hospitals have? I assume that they're all very similar, but that's probably very ignorant, that there's some general consent that you sign when you come to an emergency department if you have hands and are not bleeding to death. What is covered in that versus when is there some guideline as to when I should get a more specific consent? I think the guideline is simply this. When you're dealing with a therapy which is not the usual and customary, for example, people expect they'll have their blood pressure taken. They expect that their blood is going to be drawn for certain kinds of tests. They expect that there'll be certain kinds of x-rays. When you're doing something which is significantly invasive or carries a risk above what is usually thought of as normal in an emergency department, then I think the consent discussion probably needs to be held. 
I remember a number of years ago, our malpractice insurance carrier, who is different than the carrier we have now, wanted us to generate a consent on just about every little procedure that you can think of. It was like, what are they thinking about? This is only going to harm them. And it's interesting if you were to take a poll of physicians, how many of them routinely get a consent for a lumbar puncture, how many routinely get a consent for ionated contrast, those kinds of things. At our hospital, we don't do either of those. No, we don't either. And you actually look at what happens. You have a much greater risk of an injury from doing a blood gas than you do for well, you need a spinal consent tap. for a blood gas. They wanted that too. Yeah, we don't do that either. No, exactly. But it's clearly every time we put in a needle, there's always going to be some minimal risk. Medicine doesn't function on a zero damage concept. The science doesn't work that way. There's going to be an infinitesimally small risk in everything you do. Well, I know of one large university hospital, and it's not USC, that has actually, for a time at least, took this the exact opposite direction and said, you know what? The general consent is the general consent. Everything else is implied. And so, therefore, we are not doing any specific consents for anything, although they did stop that about six months in. Is there a reason why they stopped it? One wonders. You know, there are lots of papers in the EMA database that talk about the, the myth of consent. Right. The myth of informed consent, those kinds of things. And Greg, you mentioned the idea of ascertaining a person's competence to make consent. But I do think it would be good just to take a little time here to talk about what are the components of a good consent. And I think that it's really straightforward. You have to tell the people about the risks and benefits of what therapy you want to do. So, Mr. Smith, we'd like to take your appendix out. We think you have appendicitis here. The risks of that are that you could have some problems with anesthesia. You can get an infection. You could go into a coma, et cetera. The benefits, you'll be better in the vast majority of cases. You're better in two days. You get out of here, and you're done with this thing. Most people think that's it, but the fact is that's not it. The second thing you need to do is you have to tell them the risks and benefits of an alternative therapy. Mr. Smith, instead of doing the surgery, we could just put some ice packs on your belly, give you lots and lots of IV antibiotics. To be candid, there's a good opportunity that you'll recover by doing that. So you're giving them the risks and benefits of alternative therapy. So you have to give them some alternative. You can't make a choice if you have no choices, but appendectomy or no appendectomy. And the third thing you need to do is you need to tell them the risks and benefits of giving no treatment. Well, if we don't give you any treatment, this thing could get worse and worse and worse, peritonitis or die. Or to tell you the truth, you might just wall this thing off and you might be fine, but the risk of the likelihood of that is pretty small. That is what I want to do what the alternatives to do if we do nothing. It's pretty straightforward and easily remembered, I think. Yeah, actually, I think with most of the things we suggest, Rick, we actually skip all the way to the end simply because people have heard about a lot of things and have made assumptions. If I go in to see a mother who's got a 12-year-old boy with an appendicitis and I say, you know, it looks like it's his appendix, everything fits, and I think he probably needs to have his appendix out, You probably don't have to carry on most of the rest of that discussion because you know what? I think that mother has already known from her own experience that most people with appendicitis get their appendix out. I think that for me to suggest too many alternative therapies here probably just delays the process. In this country, usual and customary therapy for a 12-year-old with appendicitis would be removal of the appendix. There may be a part of the world where they would give high-dose antibiotics and not go in, but I think that that's probably not correct in this country at this time. Although you're talking about a relatively straightforward situation. There are situations where a person has a disorder where the treatment is not so clear what is the best thing to do. Oh, absolutely. Like uh, TPA for strokes. Well, or, or in the elderly. When we now talk about, and this is the discussion, I think, which we have all the time in the emergency department and which we need to have more of is 
grandma's failing, her kidneys are failing, we could intubate, we could do this, we could do that. Exactly. That's the kind of informed discussion we really need to have. That's where giving or withholding therapy, it's not so clear which direction that's going to be going. And in this country at this time, we're not real good at a lot of those discussions. The Europeans are ahead of us on that. In the abstracts, in what was it, January issue, there was a paper called uh, Patients' Perceptions of Written Consent. Uh, this is a British study where they asked people who had women, they asked, first of all, who had some gynecological procedure. They asked them a month later about what they recall about their consents. And this paper is consistent with every paper that we've ever done. They basically are pretty clueless about what that paper said, what rights it gave them. One of the things that this paper brings out is that the purpose of consent is to protect the patient's autonomy. Yet, when you look at what they said in the study, half the people understood that the surgery could not be performed even if life-saving because they had already signed. But what was even more interesting was a quarter of them said they couldn't change their mind after signing. I like this. I'm sorry, Mrs. Smith. You've already signed the consent. We must take your uterus out. Well, we Rick, cannot though, change that. Rick, in all fairness, this is the British. Those are the people who line up perfectly, queue perfectly for the bus in the middle of torrential rains. They're into order. They're into civil order. And that's why they feel that way. Half the people said the purpose of the consent was to protect the hospital, when in fact it's just the opposite. It's two-thirds that said that signing saved the doc- gave the doctors control of their care. Just the opposite. So, And I don't think, obviously, that this is unique because it was British. I think that it is a reflection of the fact that we don't really do a very good job across the board in this idea of informed consent. Well, I think all the paper does is reinforce every other paper that has ever been in the abstract saying – People don't really understand it. People under stress really don't know what they're signing. Whenever you say something like, well, can't get any pain medicine until you sign for your appendectomy, what you've then done is now you're intimidating someone, coercing coercing them into signing the piece of paper. I think the concepts of consent are very confusing. And again, this is like your rental car contract for your car in Maui. I read, listen, no one I, I, I reads. Read, I read that line for line. <laughs> yeah, Every Avis is different than Enterprise. If is you'd actually than read that, the people in line waiting, and it's ten o'clock at night they'd now, they would have you. beaten you to death with the luggage which they're now holding. So let me do some summarizing again. What we did in that last section is we talked about capacity for consent. And we'll obviously have to talk about capacity another time because it's a whole thing in itself. So you've got to have the capacity to consent. Consent, we realize, is actually very complex. And as Greg said, it's like Fox News. It's got to be fair and balanced. Fair and balanced. Consent forms, do they help you out? Greg suggested that it's much better to have a really good note in the chart than having the consent form itself. And that note should say something like, I gave my usual and customary discussion. And clearly, you actually have to have the usual and customary discussion. We talked also a little bit about general consent and specific consent. When do you need to get specific consent for something you're about to do? And again, what we heard was anything above what is usual and customary as defined by what a reasonable layperson would expect if they came to the emergency department. And then Rick told us a little bit about uh, what are the elements of consent. You have to tell them the risk and the benefit of what you're about to do. You also have to, and this is very important, tell them the risk and the benefit of some alternative therapy or lack of therapy that you could do for this person, but also, very important, the risk and benefits of doing nothing and sending them home on their way. And then Rick finished with a British paper that showed us again that people really don't understand consent in England, and it's not because they're stupid. 
because I'm from one of the colonies. They're very well educated. Yeah, well, you're a bunch of ex-prisoners down <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, that's from, right. That's right. From, uh, you're Australia. the Ned Kelly gang down there. <laughs> so consent is a complex issue. It's complex for physicians, and it's clearly complex for patients, and we need to do a better job of explaining to them what consent is all about. Can I put another bullet in here that we didn't talk about? But, Please. Greg, I think you'd agree with this. When you are making your spiel about risks and benefits and this and that kind of thing, it's certainly good to have not only the patient there, but a relative, uh, the wife, the daughter, that kind of thing there. But it's also, I think, in your favor to have somebody witnessing on your behalf. So a nurse is standing beside you so that that nurse can go back and he or she can document the doctor so-and-so did speak to the patient about this so that it's not just your opinion versus their opinion or your version versus their version. I think the idea of having a nurse there, when you're making a really important conversation with a patient is really important because that comes up in things about leaving against medical advice. You want to have that nurse there beside you so that they can independently document that doctor did this. Leaving against medical advice is such a huge area. We're not going to go into that today because it's an entire section. But the concept I was talking about is having somebody acting as your witness to the conversations that you think are important. In general, the more the merrier. The other thing is that family member Whenever there's a discussion going on about the care, what's going to happen when they leave, how do they enter the system, they shouldn't be out in the waiting room. They need to be in there with that patient because you want one other person who's heard the discussion out of your mouth. Whenever you have whispering down the lane, we know if you're talking to a 40-year-old man and he's going out to the waiting room to talk to his wife, do 40-year-old men talk to their wives about their health care? No. Do 40-year-old wives talk to their husbands about their health care continuously? It's a difference in the sexes, and those guys frequently don't tell people what the doctor said. I can't tell you the times I've heard in court, well, the doctor said, husband said, the doctor told him he was okay. And that's totally at odds with what the doctor testified to in court. You're right, having one of the nurses there, having family members there, whenever it's not going in your direction... Get help. Can I add another bullet? (laughs) I want another bullet in here. You're the bullet guy. I like it. Well, one of the things I think we have to be careful doing is assuming that the son or daughter is entitled to hear the discussion between the father who's 60 years old and the son is 25 years old. I think there is some issues of asking permission of the patient to bring in a family member to hear that discussion. Well, I think that also, though, there is the concept of silence giving consent. If the wife is there and you're carrying on this discussion and the husband hasn't told you, hey, I feel uncomfortable with this, I would assume that he's acquiescing to have the wife as part of the discussion. There may be sometimes what isn't, and I will certainly say in front of a lot of the patients, I see a lot of couples who aren't married, and so I'm looking at a young woman. I want to talk to her about her health care problem. It's her boyfriend who's sitting there, and I will say, do you feel comfortable with your boyfriend here? Would you like him to leave? That's the point I was trying to make. You did ask. It's appropriate to ask and to not make the assumption that the wife or whoever it is, the uncle, brother, should be there. Or, in fact, most people, when they're patients, are going to be in a dependent position. Most of them are not going to say, doctor, I'd rather not have my uncle here. They're not going to say that. So I think that we need to take the initiative in those cases. You you may be right. Straightforward. And do not make the mistake that I've made, not once, but twice, where I've said... 
do you really want your mother in the room for this discussion? <laughs> and it's not his mother, it's his wife. Yes, I've, I've <laughs> been there, done that. Whoopsie. There is no combination there that I haven't made the mistake on, but we all learn now. Everybody has made that mistake, and it is like you think you've got your foot in your mouth. So my routine now is, and what relationship are you? And of course, a lot of them get indignant. Say, well, it's obvious my, my wife kind of thing. Yeah, that's you know, right. What, or we don't do have know, a relationship. You know? I'm his wife. <laughs> but I think it's appropriate to say, and what relationship are you? Because it might be the sister. Who knows? You know, yeah. you're just being reasonable. And don't assume they're pregnant because I do a lot of them. So we're getting towards the end of the CD, so let's do the mother of all summaries. Let's quickly go over what we did this month, and let's make it quick. First of all, we talked about duty to third parties. You not only look after the patient in front of you, you're looking after third parties. Remember your state requirements and find out what your state requirements are. Talk to the medical board. Talk to your medical director. If you are a medical director, make sure your doctors and your nurses know what the state requirements are. We talked a lot about consent. We talked a little bit about capacity for consent. The person has to be able to understand what you're telling them. We realized that consent is very complicated and that consent forms are one thing, but also writing in the chart is very important. And the real pearl that I took away was that we should use terms like I used my usual and customary discussion. We talked about specific consents and general consents. General consents are those that we all get as we go to an emergency department. But you should do a more specific consent when what you're about to do to this person is above and beyond what they might expect coming to the emergency department. The myth of consent. There are lots of myths of consent. But we also realize that there are three big things we need to do when we do consents. We have to tell them the risk of what we're about to do and the benefit. We have to give them the risk and benefit of an alternative therapy. And we also have to give them the risk and benefit of no therapy. Rick brought up a British paper that made us realize that patients really don't understand what consent is about and we need to do better at telling them what that process is and we also have to do that for physicians and we made a few extra bullet points there in that discussion about bringing in a relative, asking permission to bring in a relative to give your spiel, your consent spiel in this case because having more ears is a good thing and also protecting yourself, bring in a nurse if it's a particularly dangerous procedure so that you can have somebody that on your side of the fence that can say, yes, Dr. X did give a reasonable consent to this patient. All right, enough summary. It's time for a phone interview. Let's go. I've got Tom McAndrews on the line. Tom, Greg Henry, Mel Herbert, and yours truly, Rick Bicotta, appreciate your taking our call this afternoon. I've known Tom for a number of years professionally. He's with uh, Reback McAndrews and KJAR down in Manhattan Beach, and he has come to the rescue of our doctors in our uh, emergency department uh, a couple of times, and I'm proud to say not one, well, I think maybe one dollar has, has changed hands, but not too many, thanks to uh, Tom's efforts on our behalf. Tom, the question we have for you, I've heard a lot of physicians who have been sued being concerned that the expert witnesses testifying against them are either exaggerating what they think to be the standard of care or even frankly outright fabricating what the standard of care is. I see doctor after doctor after doctor being upset about the quality and the testimony being used against them. What kinds of things do you do in trial to kind of counteract this effect? Well, I think it is a very legitimate concern in your specialty and quite candidly in most of the other specialties that there are those groups of experts that have a tendency to stretch the truth, so to speak, and misrepresent things in front of the jury. And what we have found to be most effective is to lay the appropriate groundwork prior to the case going to trial and do it during the discovery phase. 
one of the things that we have had success with is we actually keep track of all expert depositions that we've taken. And when we come up against experts, we go to our own expert library to pull out depositions where the opposing expert has testified against us in other cases. And we also will do trial and jury searches to see if these experts have testified in other cases in an effort to get them in contradictions. That's one of the ways that you can surprise them at trial. The other thing that we have found to be pretty effective is during the course of the deposition, find all their opinions and the basis for their opinions and determine which literature they believe supports their position and then go do the necessary research and be able to impeach them either with the literature that they're relying upon or other comparable literature. And we've actually found it to be pretty effective. Jurors actually like to see articles or listen to articles being read. There are some foundational problems you have evidentiary-wise getting the actual article in, but certainly you can get them to agree to what is in the article, and particularly in the field of emergency medicine in California, the experts are required to be in the active practice of emergency medicine on a regular basis. It can't be somebody from a crossover specialty or somebody that's retired four or five years earlier. But the best thing I think you can really do and what we've had success with is the preparation before you get to trial and not really waiting until trial to try to get prepared for them. Yeah, Tom, this is Greg Henry. I'm certainly well aware that in the federal court system, the feds have recognized a case called Daubert versus Merrill Dow, in which an expert, not a medicine-related case, by the way, but one which, uh, in which an expert was giving testimony which was considered to be egregious. And basically the federal decision in that case was, if testimony, you have a perfect right to challenge testimony, which really does lie outside of what would be considered what a reasonable group of physicians would consider the standard of care. I know some states are doing this now. Isn't that true? It is true. Daubert, the, the case you're referring to, really addresses kind of the, the novel scientific evidence approach where it's new trends in medicine that may not have been tested. There are some guidelines that Daubert requires and it's a three-pronged test. It's whether the method can and has been tested. The second prong is whether or not it's been subjected to peer review and publication. And the third is has it gained general acceptance. Primarily, it's the latter two prongs that make it a lot more difficult to get egregious testimony in. And I think we can all agree that all the peer review journals sometimes publish things that are contradicted even with the same volume, case studies that come to different conclusions. But what it requires is something more than that, the fact that it's actually gained general acceptance. And that's the critical issue as far as talking about Daubert. In California, they, they don't use the Daubert approach. They actually use the older Kelly Fry approach, which just requires that the reliability be established and that the expert can demonstrate that it's generally accepted within the medical community and that the expert himself is properly qualified and can show, at least in testing, that the proper procedures were used. This, I think, in conjunction in California with Health and Safety Code Section 1799, which requires specifically using emergency medicine specialists to testify on standard of care, we have a little bit of a benefit here, and it's a little more narrow than the Daubert approach, although as far as emergency medicine is concerned, I don't think Daubert's going to be a real big factor because it really does go to novel scientific evidence. And when you're getting into issues like that, you know, if you see a patient come up with an acute coronary syndrome, well, you know, that, that's the more recent term for coronary artery disease or ischemia, and they're using that, and it's making it a little more broad encompassing, but it's something that's 
can that kind of goes back a lot longer than that, and usually the emergency room physician will generally call on a specialist anyway. So I wouldn't be as concerned with Dalbert. I'd be more concerned with this guy's coming in and testifying beyond what is generally accepted within the scientific community as far as emergency medicine is concerned. Tom, you're well aware that a lot of the specialty societies, orthopedics, neurosurgery, and now emergency medicine, have set up within their professional organizations a method to go back and, uh, let's say, review questionable testimony. What are your thoughts about the potential pitfalls of this for the average physician who wants to go back after, quote-unquote, an egregious uh, testifier? I think that that potentially has a whole host of concerns, quite frankly. If the physician that has given testimony that may not be supported by the literature, but he says in his own experience it works, and if somebody reports him and for some reason he loses his licensing or uh, for some reason is kicked out of the society and it impacts his earnings, that's a pretty dicey issue. I don't know that I want to be on one side of that because then you end up being, you know, turn around and getting sued for that, to be honest with you. I know that a lot of these specialties have begun to look into it and investigate their peers to testify to things that aren't necessarily true. And in some groups, they've said, well, you no longer can be a member of this society. It is maybe a way of policing within your own group, but I also think that there are potential pitfalls, and I think I would think long and hard before I did it if I was an individual physician because ramifications can be somewhat disconcerting. And I think we all recognize that even with some of the more far-reaching things that they testify to, odds are they can find some literature somewhere to support their position. Tom, I have a specific question that came up recently, and that was there was a gentleman who was giving expert testimony against a group and this group happened to know who this physician was. And they thought that the expert testimony that this doctor was going to give was bogus. They thought it was really quite rank. And they felt they knew this guy personally, that they should call him before he gave his testimony to suggest that uh, maybe what he was saying in his written testimony was bogus. Is that considered a bad thing to do if you know an expert to call them, to contact them before it goes to trial, to tell them I, uh, I, to give I that would... testimony? I would always recommend against doing that because if that expert that you're going to contact doesn't back down and the case does go to trial, one of the questions you are sure to hear is, well, did you ever get a call from the group about what your testimony was going to be and did they try to sway you one way or the other? You as the group then loses all credibility with the jury because you're trying to, you know, kind of through the back door lean on someone to say something that, you know, whether you agree with it or not, it just it looks like undue influence and it looks like you're trying to hide something. So I, I, I always caution my clients never to talk to the experts. If the expert has a question, they do it through me. If, if my client has a suggestion to the expert, they will do it through me. But never under any circumstance would I suggest you contact an expert directly. Yeah, that really smacks, I think, of intimidating a witness. You know, there are criminal penalties for something like that. You need to be very, very careful. Anytime you're into ex parte communication of anybody, the patient, an expert, another treating physician, I think in general these kind of contacts should be made through counsel if they're made at all and be very careful of intimidation. Yeah, I agree with that completely. I think you're, just, you're barking up the wrong tree. It is unethical and it just looks bad anyway. Yeah, Sopranos use that technique all the time. <laughs> hey, you, you, got, you got a nice practice of medicine here. We wouldn't want to see anything happen to that practice. Right? Yeah. <laughs> very true, very true. Well, Tom, thanks very much for your time. We oh, very much appreciate it. You gave some good tips here. and We hope to be in contact with you in the future. All right, if you have any questions, feel free to call. 
Thanks, Thank Tom. Thank you. All right, take care, guys. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Now, the most important part of this series, in my mind, is the last section, and the last section is the wine of the month. Greg is a well-known alcoholic through the emergency departments of Michigan, and he's going to tell us about the wine of the month. He's on an 18-step program. <laughs> <laughs> Ten, just as a get a cut. That's right. And the first part of my program is simply this. I think that if you look up in the Wine Spectator and the Wine Advocate and all the, the upper crust journals, you can always find a wine for $150 a bottle. To me, it's something you drink. Two hours later, it's going through your kidneys and gone. What I want to find are those wines which are a great bargain with great taste. And this month, I'm going to give you two of them. I want our membership, our readership to go out, take it, buy it, try it, write back, give us their opinions. If they found something out there sitting on a shelf someplace that we don't know about, let us know. Here are the rules. It's got to be reasonably priced. This $150 a bottle stuff, you know what? It's nice if you can do that. I bet most people in emergency medicine, that's a stretch. That's a lot of money. So I'm going to hit you with two of them today, see what you think. One of, them, one of my favorites is Behringer has been a wine producer in California for years and years and years, very well known. A lot of their stuff is significantly expensive in the $80 to $90 a bottle range. But the Cabernet Sauvignon 2003 under the brand Knights Valley is $27 a bottle, and I defy you to find that that's any different taste than their $80 and $90 a bottle stuff. It's terrific. It comes from the same grapes. This is good stuff. This is where we need to go. The next one is if you're into white wines, there is a producer in Sonoma County. They make the 2005 Moon Mountain Sauvignon Blanc, and it's 12 bucks a bottle, and this compares very favorably with the wines I have in my cellar. I have some very good French wines, the Montagniers, things like that, which are now probably 35 40 bucks a cellar. At 12 bucks a bottle, you can't beat it. I like this. Now, Rick is not a wine drinker, so he doesn't care about this section, but Rick, tell us about your I, beer of the I month. I couldn't care less about <laughs> wine. You yeah. know? Well, there was that Mad Dog 2020, though, that you liked. <laughs> you know, I'm from Philadelphia. I used to work in the bowling alley. We don't drink wine in Philadelphia. Soft pretzels, cheesesteaks, that's what we're into. Right. So I wanted to tell you about a great bargain that I found recently at the 99 cent store here in Los Angeles. I don't know if you have 99 cent stores where you are, but they had Pabst Blue Ribbon for 99 cents a bottle. It was Absolutely terrific. I would have paid $2 or $3 for a Pabst Blue Ribbon, but 99 cents, Pabst Blue Ribbon, the 99 cent store. Outstanding. Well, gentlemen, I think this was a great tape. We went over lots of stuff. As being clearly the most ignorant slut on the series, I took away a lot of useful information. I'm sure other people did as well. Do they know where they can write to us, whether they can call us, where they can let us know what their feelings are, Mel? No, oh, no, Rick doesn't want them to do that. Well, actually, <laughs> you can write to Risk Management Monthly. P.O. Box 600, Creamery, Pennsylvania, 19430. I don't want to give you the phone number for crying out loud. It's the 800 phone number. You know what we get? In, no, give them the that. phone number, Rick. 800-458-4779 from 9 until 4.30 on the East Coast time. And you'll see our website address, Risk Management Monthly, emergencymedicine.com. And all of this stuff is written on the outside of the CD yeah, there and the you tape. Go. So just pop it out. And we would like there. to hear from you. Absolutely. So from all of us, from Rick, from Mel, and this is Greg, goodbye until next month. Buh-bye. On this last track, 
We're going to talk about what Risk Management Monthly is about, our plan for it. Now, you've already listened to the CD, and most likely, you know kind of the flavor of where we're going here. You've probably read the flyer and have an idea of what it's about. But for those of you that want to hear it from the horse's mouth, we're going to spend about 10 minutes talking about what we believe this program is and what it should be in the future. Hey, look, boys, we're gathered here today to not break bread, but to talk about Risk Management Monthly, which is this new series, which is the brainchild of you two. So what the heck are we doing here every month from now on? Well, let me start out by saying that you're right. I am old. I've been around a long time. One thing I've watched since my first days in the emergency department in 74 is I've <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> is what I've watched is an escalation in medical legal problems, which is almost unbelievable. What is happening now is that doctors just aren't practicing medicine. They are dealing with a society which is in some ways out of control when it comes to lawsuits. And there's nothing in medicine which compares to the emergency department as a place where all the various forces in law, medicine, society all come together in one ugly spot. And you're dealing with people who are at their worst, who haven't decided electively to come and see you. They're there on an emergent basis. They're afraid you're going to kill them, and you're afraid that they're going to sue you. So what we've taken is the worst of the elements, put them together in a pressure cooker where we're closing beds, where we're asked to do more and more with less and less, and yet we're supposed to produce perfection every time. And I think it's real easy when you sit from the outside and when you look in retrospect to decide what should have happened to a case at a particular moment in time. I think what we're going to try and do in this series each month is look at those situations and put the doctor in the best possible position. Chance favors the prepared mind. And if you've heard about it or you know that something can come down the pike, you can at least kind of know in advance that this could be a medical legal problem. So this is about the intersection of the medicine, which things like EMA and EMRAP tell you about, and law. And obviously those two are intimately linked, but we're going to bring those two together because I might know how to look after a patient with a headache and rule out subarachnoid hemorrhage, but I might do some bad things with charting, and I might talk to the patient the wrong way. I might not understand the precedents that have been set in the legal world, which may affect what I do after I did good medicine or during the process of doing good medicine. And I want to point out that what is the standard of care will be talked about almost every month. Standard of care means that which is applicable, what a reasonable physician of like or similar training would do under like or similar circumstances, it depends on the situation you're in and what's going on. You and I have all been in situations where when the place is falling apart, when there's 10 more people to see, we have had to shortcut certain kinds of treatments and examinations. Is that a violation of the standard of care? I don't think so. I think it's what's reasonable at that time. And one thing we have to do is we have to put this in a perspective of what is reasonable. It's very easy to speak academically about what you can and cannot do. It's a totally different world when you have to apply it in a practice setting where you're going to be judged by administration, other physicians, the community at large, and the families want to decide whether this was good or bad medicine. And in the final analysis, all of our cases will be judged not by a group of medical experts, but by people picked off the voters' rolls at a particular county, and those lay people get to decide whether you did it right or wrong. Whether you think that's fair or not, this is the world we live in, and we cannot change that. And I think what you have to worry about is that those people don't know much science, 
But what they do know is whether they liked you as a doctor, whether they think you tried. And if they don't think you gave it your best on behalf of that patient, I think it's very hard to discuss number needed to treat, sensitivity indexes, and that sort of thing with a jury. They don't understand it. You don't think they get that confidence interval business? Well, (laughs) (laughs) having watched literally hundreds of closing arguments in court, I've never once heard an appeal to a specificity index number needed to treat. I've never once seen a differential equation put on the board. This is if they'd only cared. And when we lose sight of that, we forget that medicine is in its final analysis a service industry and people who got the service will decide whether they liked it or not. We're supposed to be talking about the bullet points here about what we're going to give you each month. So let me go through the bullet points as written by Dr. Rick Bucata. What this series is going to do is integrate the clinical medicine and risk management principles over a vast number of topics. We're going to include interviews with risk management authorities. Now, clearly, Greg is here as our risk management authority. We're going to call other ones as well just to check up and make sure he's not lying. We'll call lawyers and other people like that. Yeah, just in case you want to make sure that someone is lying, we're going to call attorneys as well. But I think in all fairness, there are lots of people who have things to contribute to this discussion This is an ongoing discussion, and I certainly hope that some of our readers and listeners will want to join in and participate as well. Yes, so we're going to have a mailbag every month. We're also going to review the major articles related to emergency medicine and risk management. This is what Rick does every month. Where can we find those? There must be a resource (laughs) out there. And, in fact, we're going to call some of the authors of those articles to get their perspective on some of these really provocative papers. We're going to focus on actual closed claim cases. And where are we going to find those, Greg? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We certainly know the experts who have looked at virtually thousands of these cases. And we know what's happening out there these days in emergency medicine. We're going to make, and this is what's important to me, specific recommendations about how to avoid claims. This is the stuff that you really want to know out there. You want to know what can I do in this particular scenario to reduce my chance of ever seeing somebody like Greg on the stand. Yeah, the last thing that you want is another organization or some other group of people telling you to be nice to the patients. That's not adequate. You need more specific actions. When you hear X or Y, what do you immediately think? In this situation, what are my liabilities? What are my concerns? How can I position myself in the best possible forum to not have something bad happen? Because, you know, malpractice is the only game in America where to win, you can't play. See, as soon as you're named you've lost. We're already expending money. I frequently, when I'm giving uh, courses, will ask people, well, who's been sued? A few hands go up. I say, did you win or lose? Immediately say, oh, no, I won. Say, oh, yeah, you left with more money than you came in with? They paid you? No, not that I remember. So to me, and in my other role, working with an insurance company, I don't care who the checks go to. What I want doctors to understand is having to play the game is in itself a loss and you need to do something to prevent playing in the game. Right. It's not just about money. It's about the toll that this process takes on you because they have to show that you're an uncaring jerk. They have to show that you are negligent and you are bad and that those people in the jury have to be understanding that this is not a good doctor and we want to nail this doctor. I I don't like them having to do that. I mean, my wife does that enough. You know, (laughs) I, I don't need anybody else talking about that. 
But the adversarial nature of this means that doctors oftentimes have a great deal of time difficulty just going through this process. They have exacerbations of chronic illnesses. There's more divorces when this happens. There's a whole litany of things that happens to them that are bad, independent of the outcome of the case. Absolutely. Their golf scores go up. There's one study that showed that 97% of physicians, when they were interviewed, said that they had some emotional upset or problem after the time that they were sued. It's a very stressful event for a physician, and the reason is physicians find their core identity in being a doctor. Well, this is a personal attack on you. Absolutely. The lawyer, he'll take you to dinner afterwards. It's nothing personal, Doc, but I've got to make you look like a jerk. Exactly That's right. You know, if you said to me, Greg, you're sort of a bad father, I'd say, well, what's your point? If you said you're a terrible husband, I'd say, well, let's have a drink. But don't you ever call me a bad doctor because <laughs> now you're getting personal, <laughs> and I'm going to do something about that. A couple of other things we're going to do each month is we're going to stress some of the stuff that we and you have talked about in the past regarding charting because, unfortunately, there's a disproportionate emphasis on what the chart says. So we're going to focus on that as well. Uh, what else are we going to do here? You're going to give them some CME credits if they want them up to 24 hours yeah, a year. Some of these states require that you have CME credits and risk management. Well, you're going to have them coming out of your ears now. Yeah, 24 of them. That's a lot. That's half the requirement in the state of Michigan. You're also going to give them some printed key points and recommendations. A lot of people are audio learners. If you get this series, you obviously like to listen to things on your commute in your car. But you know what you're also going to get? You're going to get some printed key points you can stick in your pocket as you're about to discharge that patient. What did Greg say before I send this person home? Oh. Yep. I think that's all we're going to give them. That's it. We're not going to give them any more. And if you want to download it off the Internet, go right ahead. You can do it from the Internet. P3, that's for those young guys. Yeah. But I think that's not all we're going to give them, Rick. Let's look for just a second. The situation is hopeless, but it's not humorless. We've got to have lawyer jokes. I mean, how can you get along without lawyer jokes? We may match those with orthopedic jokes, too. It'll be just fine. Little doctor, little lawyer, that'll be good. Plus, we're actually going to take another approach, and we'll do wine of the month. Because if you're sitting home sued, depressed, you might as well be drinking something decent (laughs) at the time. And it shouldn't be too expensive. This may be the last time you can afford it. That's exactly (laughs) right. (laughs) More than that, we're going to feature wines that don't cost too much. Because after all, somebody's already put your assets on hold. (laughs) It's all good stuff. And it'll all be packaged together in a rich, chocolatey milkshake of Risk Management Monthly. It's very exciting. Look, thanks for listening to this inaugural edition of Risk Management Monthly. We hope to talk to you every month on this series. But on behalf of Rick Bucutter, Greg Henry, and myself, Mel Herbert, we say bye for now, and we'll talk to you soon.